John 11, where I want you to notice with me again verse 1, three very familiar names, all of them in the same verse. He says, a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, Lazarus of Bethany, the town, here it is, of Mary and her sister Martha. Well, there you have it, three names. There's Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And of course, to further clarify the identity of these three, you'll notice what it says in verse 2. It was that Mary, just to clarify, a lot of Marys, as you know, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Here it is, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, his sisters sent unto him, saying. Well, I think that's crystal clear. All three of these people mentioned are siblings. Lazarus, the brother, Mary and Martha, the sisters. Their hometown, as we just noted, is Bethany. The word Bethany means house of figs. And yes, their house in this hometown was the one place in the one village where Jesus is seen the most residing as a place of rest, fellowship, and food. Way back in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it says, A certain woman named Martha received Jesus into her house. You know, it's interesting, by the way, Matthew 26 calls the same place, quote, the house of Simon the leper. It leads a lot of Bible teachers to suggest that Martha was the widow of Simon, at one time a leper. Maybe. What we do know is that this house, three miles outside of Jerusalem on the road, just where it begins to drop towards Jericho, at that place, there's a certain family. A family that especially welcomed Jesus of Nazareth into their home. And you know, folks, you can only imagine what that house meant to our Lord, who, remember, as the Son of Man, He had no place to lay His head. Foxes have their holes and the birds have their nests, Jesus said. But He Himself owned no property and no house for His own. And oh, what a blessing was the home of Martha and Lazarus and Mary, where there was always a warm welcome and a great kindness, a deep sort of understanding and sympathy for his ministry. In the Gospel of Matthew, we find that especially during his very last week on earth, the house of Bethany was a respite for our Lord. And so it is that we notice something. We notice this in the very next chapter. Look at John chapter 12. You'll notice verse 1, there is the name Lazarus. You'll notice verse 2, and of course it says they came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Verse 2, it says, there made him a supper, and Martha served. And verse 3, then took Mary a pound of ointment. Now folks, think about this. John 11 is a very long chapter. It's 57 verses. And it is all about one family. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In the context of resurrection and life, Lazarus is raised from the dead in that chapter. John chapter 12 concerns the very same three people. But in the context of sacrifice and atonement and death, you'll notice chapter 12, verse 7, Then said Jesus, Let her alone, because against the day of my burying hath she kept this ointment. All in all, it is an astonishing, powerful revelation 
from which we learn some of the most astonishing and powerful truth. And so I hope we'll all listen very carefully this morning. I want to speak on the subject of blessings at Bethany. Blessings at Bethany. Father, help us, please. And Lord, with your help, all distractions, anything between us and you, Lord, please help us cast those aside. That you may speak to each heart and that every ear will hear what the Spirit has to say. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Two sisters and their brother, as a typical remnant family in first century Israel, pretty much dominate the final days and the final hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. And of course, you can thank Martha for that. She's the one, very early in Christ's ministry, who welcomed Jesus into her home. Martha was a model, an absolute model of hospitality and service and labor. In Luke 10, as Jesus was traveling from Jericho, it says in the Bible that he told his disciples the parable of the Good Samaritan. And right after telling them that parable, right now, they're about to witness an example of that same kind and kindness firsthand. Coming to Bethany, you realize that it's not just the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who shows up for rest and for food. It's all of his disciples. So you know what? At least, at least 13 men will show up at Martha's house. They are hungry. They are tired. They have their dirty feet from walking on those dusty roads. And those feet have to be washed in their culture. And food? There's a lot of men. And so Martha sends people off to the market, prepares the guest chambers, and soon all the food and all of the drink that is necessary. It's a lot of work. And frankly, folks, we understand. We understand her frustration when she looks out her window and there in the cool shade of the courtyard, she sees her sister Mary sitting down, fellowshipping with Jesus. She wondered where she was. And sure enough, Martha speaks up. Lord, dost thou not care? Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me alone to serve? Bid her, therefore, to help me. Now, wait a minute. Dost thou not care? Obviously, folks, those are strong words. And all of us say things in our own frustration that are too strong and that are too wrong. And we do it from time to time. Sometimes, in fact, we're on the receiving end. We're the misunderstood ones. And we have received words of do. I've heard it hundreds of times. Pastor, don't you care? That. And yet you may recall how the Lord Jesus responded to Martha. Because, you know, with patience and grace... And understanding, the Lord says what? What's the first thing he says? You have some kind of nerve. The first thing he says is, Martha, Martha. You know, folks, only a few times in all of the Gospels does our Lord use this double emphasis. Remember? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Simon, Simon. On the cross, my God, my God. Later it was Saul, Saul, 
And that's it. So you see, in each of these occasions, our Lord spoke from deep within his heart with love and with compassion and with emotion. Yes, Jesus teaches Martha why Mary is okay in doing what she's doing. But he's also responding to her and reaching out to her in gratitude for what Martha is doing. Martha's a zeal and industry. You think about this, on a human level, nobody would have eaten that night had it not been that she possessed these things. And Jesus recognized that. Martha, Martha. It's a reminder to me this morning of the first truth of our message that, number one, Jesus is merciful. You see, folks, you think about it. Our Lord was neither offended nor outraged by Martha's intrusion and implication. He understood it. The Lord Jesus did not respond like many of us would respond and do respond when somebody interrupts us and accuses us, don't you even care? Jesus understood and showed the same kind of patience and grace that all of us should show and strive for in God's kingdom. What a merciful Lord that we serve. It brings us to the second lesson. And that is a lesson of our brother Lazarus. Number one, we said Jesus is merciful. Number two, you'll notice Jesus, this is our Lord, our Savior. You'll see the point later on. Number two, he is powerful. Look at verse one. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him, they made Jesus a supper, and Martha served. Of course she did. That's what Martha does. And Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him, with Jesus. Now, wait a minute. Don't forget. Hold it. Chapter 11. Well, just turn back there. Look at chapter 11. Let's be reminded of what actually happened. Verse 3 says, Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. I don't know what kind of sickness Lazarus had, but it was serious. Serious enough for them to say, Lord, listen, please come. He's very sick. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus. Verse 14, then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And then verse 32, when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. You see, remember, folks, in verse 39, it was Martha who said, Lord, he stinketh by now. Lord, you can't open the sepulcher. It's been four days since our brother has died. Now, ponder that for a moment. For many days, we know that Mary and Martha sat by a sickbed Praying, waiting, and then grieving, and then the funeral, and then the burial. Their beloved brother, Lazarus, was gone, dead. Except, here he is in chapter 11 in the flesh, 12 in the flesh. Look who's coming to dinner. 
Look at chapter 12. Read it again. Verse 2. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Folks, you have to picture the scene. Because this is the same scene before he died. And just like before, everybody's sitting around at the dinner table. According to verse 3, the whole house now is filled with the sweet smell of the ointment that Mary lavishly used in the anointing of Christ. In addition to that, there's the smell of the food cooking. Martha helped to prepare and serve this meal. And you can see all of them there. There's Matthew and James and John and Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel and Philip, and they're all seated around the table until you come to the most unexpected guest of all because at the same table, the Apostle John specifically points to the attendance of the presence of a man named Lazarus. He is one of them, John says, that's sitting at the table with Jesus. Think about that. Lazarus (laughs) is being served food by his own sister Martha, who just days before buried him. He's sitting there, he is eating, he's fellowshipping, he's talking. Lazarus, who was not only merely dead, but really most sincerely dead. Okay, you get that point. (laughs) This is, to this point in human history, the single greatest miracle ever witnessed. And this is the point. Everybody witnessed it. Including the Pharisees. Including Jesus' enemies. Everybody saw him sitting there. That this same brother who was sick and dead and gone. Who was mourned. Who was buried. Who was corrupted even for days. Very same brother. Who had entered into eternity is now having dinner with them back in Bethany. It had to have been the most amazing scene ever. How did they say grace? And we pray, Father, thank you for the food and thank you that Brittany can be here from Knoxville. What did they say? Father, we thank you for our meal and thank you that Brother Lazarus is here from the dead. From the grave. From heaven, if you know your Bibles. Pretty much nobody ever prayed anything like that. Nobody ever attended his own wake alive. Nobody got to do what Martha did by having and handing a plate of food to her own brother days after anointing her own brother's body. Jesus is that powerful. And you know, beloved, that highlights a very, very important detail in this text. Notice what John writes in chapter 11 again in verse 5. You see what it says there? It says, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Now that's a one little verse. Can I ask you a question? Why did John write that? Talk about overstating the obvious. Of course Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus loved Peter and Andrew and Matthew. Jesus loved the thief on the cross. 
It was John himself who wrote, having loved his own, he loved them unto them, all of them unto the end. John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was John who wrote that, that Jesus manifested the love of God to the whole world. So that it's just as accurate to say this morning that Jesus loves Andy and Johnny. That Jesus loves Nick. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Look at verse 3 of chapter 11. Therefore his sister said unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom what? Thou lovest. Why is John emphasizing this? Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, behold, how he loved Lazarus, how he loved him. John makes the point. But why put it in the text overstating the obvious? I can tell you why. One reason is to illustrate one of the greatest reminders in all of Scripture. Those of you who were here for our Gospel of John series, the middle times, may remember that we had you take a pen and circle the statement in verse 5 where it says Jesus loved Lazarus. And then draw a line from that verse all the way down to verse 14 and circle the last three words of verse 14. Spoken by Jesus himself, Lazarus is dead. Now, wait a minute. A, Jesus loved Lazarus. B, Lazarus is dead. Jesus loved Lazarus, Martha, and Mary... And in the same pen, with the same wet ink, he writes, Lazarus is sick, Lazarus is dead. You see, folks, it is absolutely consistent with God's will. It is consistent with God's truth to have two things be said of you. The all-powerful Jesus. Number one, Jesus loves you. And number two, you fill in the blank with any and all burden you may have. In other words, whatever heartache, whatever sorrow or sickness or trial or loss, it is absolutely consistent for that burden to be present while at the same time to know that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves Lazarus. Lazarus is sick. Is it possible? Can both be true? Well, folks, the answer obviously is yes. Absolutely yes. And if you're here this morning and, and you're like Mary or Martha and you're burdened over somebody that you love right now, or maybe you're the Lazarus and you are bearing the burden on your shoulders yourself, don't forget this. In fact, never forget this. Jesus loves you and His love and His love for you does not waver because you or people you love are in the midst of an affliction. The Lord Jesus is still both merciful and powerful. You know, in Daniel Defoe's masterpiece, Robinson Crusoe, there's a scene where Crusoe gives Friday the gospel. Remember, he, he's on this island and he's a castaway and he sees a footprint in the sand and, and uh, Defoe writes that, that Crusoe knew from that moment nothing would ever be the same again. So he meets this native and he befriends him and he begins to give this man the gospel. And Friday, after this long dissertation, 
in that amazing book, Friday asked the question, he says, if God much might, much power over devil, why God not kill devil? And Robinson Crusoe says, I was perplexed by the question and pretended not to hear it. Well, folks, God is not perplexed. And in fact, that leads us to the third truth in the text. In Martha, we see Jesus is merciful. In Lazarus, we see Jesus is powerful. And in Mary, we see that Jesus is faithful. Go back to chapter 12, would you please? There's so much rich truth in this text. We could spend hours here, but look at verse 3. It says, Then Mary took a pound of ointment, of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why? Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the bag. And he bare or kept what was put therein. By the way, you ever notice in the Gospels that all three times we see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus? If you go back and read what we read before, she fell at his feet. Luke chapter 10, she's at Jesus' feet listening to his word, and she's misunderstood. In John 11, she falls at Jesus' feet over the sorrow of her brother Lazarus, and yet again, she's misunderstood. Here in chapter 12, she's at Jesus' feet again, and she's misunderstood. It is precisely because Mary seems like she's always at the feet of Jesus and because she's listening to him while she's there that Mary of Bethany understood and embraced and appreciated all of the doctrines and the prophecies that even the apostles had missed. The truth that Jesus must die. Chapter 12, verse 7, Then said Jesus, let her alone against or until the day of my burying hath she kept this. Now, folks, follow this carefully. Mary of Bethany, being a woman of some kind of means, as we understand her family to be, she takes what is undoubtedly the most precious possession that she has or, or ever had, this proud possession of hers, a pound, the Bible says, a very expensive imported spikenard. Nobody understands why she does what comes next. Nobody. In fact, most people criticize her, murmur against her. You know, people who sit at the feet of Jesus are often misunderstood and talked about. She brings the oil in an alabaster box, and the Bible says she breaks the box. She's going to use all of it. And she puts it on the feet of the Lord Jesus, very precious. You'll see John calls it, verse 3, very costly, so costly. You'll see verse 5 says the disciples argued it could have been sold for a hundred pence. For the average person who made a denarii a day, this was an entire year's wages. This is 300 days, if you will. It's the modern equivalent of about $40,000 poured out on one person. No wonder the Bible says that 
All the disciples, if you compare all the Gospels, it's recorded in all the Gospels, that all of the disciples were indignant about this act. And no wonder they misunderstood her and talked about her. In fact, what a waste for a Christian to even have something this lavish in the first place. How could Mary afford this? You can hear the whispers. And I can tell you that most likely this aromatic oil Mary had had for many, many years. In those days, it was akin to a dowry. And you would just continue to add to it almost like a bank, if you will. And bear in mind, beloved, that to get one ounce of spikenard from India, it took nearly a thousand pounds of a certain plant that only grew in India. We don't know how Mary acquired this much, whether by gift or by saving or constantly by both. The point is she had it. And Jesus knew her heart. And she had had it for a very long time. She may have even used some of it on her own brother at the burial. Can you even imagine that smell also being in this smell? And you know, who was it? Who was it who came up with the idea of the first one of selling the ointment and giving the money to the poor? Some pious saint. It was Judas Iscariot. Judas, who the Bible says was covetous and ambitious and carnal to his core. You know, a lot of people who pretend to care for the poor do nothing of the kind. A lot of those people are in Washington, D.C. right now. They're usually the same people, by the way, who say, well, if God is so powerful and also merciful, why doesn't he destroy all evil? Mary didn't say that. She recognized that Jesus, whom she loved, was about to give his life and blood precisely because he was faithful to do God's will to destroy evil and sin. Chapter 12, look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. By the way, look around this room. 2,000 years later, much fruit. Verse 25, he that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. That's what Jesus is about, life eternal. Beloved, can you imagine knowing that your hour has come? Jesus announced it. The hour has come. And you know it's an hour of sorrow and pain and sin and shame and loneliness, knowing what's ahead and then making certain that it happens. What an encouragement Mary was by bringing the anointment, the ointment, as a reminder that she understood that he must do what he was called to do. Jesus is faithful. I remember years ago, Crystal and I were in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I conducted the funeral service for my father-in-law. Dad had fallen in his garage. I hadn't heard from him. Louise and I hadn't heard from him for quite a while. And so finally we called a friend. They went over and checked on him. And, and um, he had nearly died. And so he was uh, put in some rehab and finally passed away. So we were up there doing his funeral service that I preached. 
And only six months before, in this building, we had the service for Louise, his daughter, my wife. So we're up in Knoxville. We're staying at a hotel in Knoxville. And <clears throat> while I'm in this big lobby, down the hallway, I was certain that I could hear the voice of Sam Eisenbach. I mean, couldn't be Brother Sam because he was filling the pulpit for me while I was away. <laughs> but it sure sounded like him. And if that wasn't weird enough, in a few minutes, I started hearing my own voice. So now I'm like, what in the world? And I'm walking towards the sound. And it took me to a little cubicle where a lady was seated there and listening to our live stream. <clears throat> you see, the night before, we had checked in, and she told Crystal and I that she had had a very heavy burden, so I gave her a track, and it had our website on it. And so she's online now listening to the memorial service for Louise and then some other messages. She had tears in her eyes. She said, Pastor, I have, I have sons who are students at Bob Jones University, which immediately told me that she wasn't saved. <clears throat> she had tears in her eyes. She went on to tell me about her broken heart and her sorrow. And she said, I was praying that God would speak to my heart and give me some encouragement. And she said that she said God knew exactly what I needed to hear. And it was actually Brother Sam's message. It was Brother Sam's message on God's great faithfulness that she was listening to. And she said, I just needed the reminder of this eternal fact that God is faithful. And she said the same faithful God made sure I had a way of hearing that. Well, God is faithful to you this morning. If Jesus was faithful to go to the cross, if Jesus was faithful in that hour to make sure he went to that hour, and with that faithfulness, along with his being merciful and powerful, don't you think this morning that you can trust him today and always? And by the way, don't you think as well that you can strive to be merciful instead of outraged or offended? That we can be more like him instead of more like our carnal self? <clears throat> we often state it this way, and I'll close. God is love. We've said this many times. God is perfect love. Therefore, because God is love, he wants what is best for his own. God wants what's best for you because he loves you, truly loves you. You're a parent. Jesus used that comparison once. He said, what father, if a son wants this, gives him this. I'm a better, I have a better father than you are. So God is love. He wants what's best for his own. Number two, God is omniscient. He knows what's best for his own. Now, I might want what's best for my own, but I'm not omniscient. I don't always know what's best. I think I do. <clears throat> but God does. God is love. He wants what's best for his own. God is omniscient. He knows what's best for his own. Number three, God is omnipotent. So he can do what's best for his own. Now, once again, even if I know what's best for my own and I want what's best for my own, I'm not omnipotent. I can't always, in my flesh, do what's best. But God can. 
So, here's the only conclusion to that. Those facts, those truths. If he wants what's best for his own, if he knows what's best for his own, if he can do what's best for his own, and he's faithful. The conclusion is God always does what's best for his own. If God allows something in your life, God always, he has to. He loves you. He knows you. He has the power to do what he he can do. God always does what's best for his own. May not feel like it. May not look like it. I guarantee you these sisters did not feel like Jesus was faithful when Lazarus was so sick that he died. In fact, they half accused him, Lord, if you had been here, you stayed there for two more days. We gave you the message, and instead of coming right away, it says you stayed two more days to make sure that he was dead. It didn't look like it or feel like it. But Jesus was doing what was best for his own. And they would soon discover, as we all do and all will, that whatever the circumstances, Jesus is merciful. Jesus is powerful. And Jesus is faithful. And dearly beloved, you can trust a God like this. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed for just a moment. I wonder who might say this morning, Pastor Blaylock, by the grace and the mercy of God, I'm a Christian. But in some measure, something in the text, I needed it today, and God has spoken to my heart as a child of God. I mean, you know you're saved, but you know God is speaking to you about something. You know, it could be just be that follow the example of Jesus. Martha, Martha, wow, what mercy, what patience, what long-suffering, what grace. He wasn't outraged or offended that Martha interrupted his teaching to Mary and accused him of not caring. He just patiently taught her. I've said this before, but is it not amazing to you that when Jesus said, one of you is about to betray me, that the disciples, after three and a half years, still didn't know who it was. What kind of mercy did Jesus have in the way he treated Judas? That they couldn't even tell he was the traitor. Maybe you're a Christian, but you just need to be reminded that you can trust a God like this completely, wholeheartedly, with all that you have. I mean, after the third day, don't you think that Mary and Martha and all of them were thinking, Jesus just didn't care. He wasn't here. And they would have been wrong. And you would be wrong. Because I'll remind you that Lazarus would live and he would die again. Again. But the Lord made that great point in John chapter 11. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, what really matters is eternal life. Pastor, I'm saved here today by the grace of God, but I needed this message as a Christian. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands through the building as I lift mine? God bless you and amen and amen. Pastor Blalock, I'm here today and I couldn't lift my hand that I'm saved. But I, I would like to. We stated at the beginning of the service that maybe you couldn't sing in, with conviction, I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, you can be. Pastor, that's me. I'm not sure that I'm saved, that I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb, that, that my name's written in heaven, but I'd, I'd like to be washed. I'd like to have my name in heaven. I won't embarrass you to come to you, but could we just pray for you? If you're here today and you're not sure about your salvation, 
I just want to pray for you. Raise your hand really high till we see it. God bless you. Anyone else? Raise it up high enough where we can see it. God bless you. I see your hand, young man. Praise the Lord. Amen. Anyone else? All right, we're going to pray. And as always, it's a time of invitation. This is the altar for God's people to use. Or if you want to make a public decision, we can. If you want to speak with Brother Andy, he's at the front. Whatever it is, if God is speaking to your heart, obey his voice, won't you? And by all means, if you're a Christian here today, let the Lord Jesus be your model. Not some athlete, not some politician full of bluster. Let the mercy, the long-suffering of Christ be our example and our model. Father, bless the invitation. Thank you, Lord, for your word again. Thank you that you love us and you want what's best for us, that you know us and you know what's best. Thank you that we know that you're all-powerful and that you can always do and will always do what's best. To that end, Father, may we as your people submit ourselves to your will. May we do it afresh this morning, always. For those who are not sure about salvation, Father, these who raised their hands, and this young man also, Lord, draw them to the cross and to you, please. In Jesus' precious name, amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.